Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to Dietitian to Dietitian, a new series brought to you by Dietitian Connection. Dietitian to Dietitian is hosted by the Today Show USA nutrition and health expert, Joy Bauer, where she delves into different ideas and perspectives on some of the hottest topics in dietetics with two expert dietitian guests. There are so many confusing, compelling and intriguing topics in the world of nutrition. And our goal at Dietitian Connection is to highlight and provide you with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you and ultimately to help you become the very best registered dietitian you can be. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Dietitian to Dietitian. Thank you so much for joining us, and a very big thank you to our sponsor, Abbott Nutrition Health Institute, for supporting today's episode. My name is Joy Bauer, and I am so thrilled to be back here hosting Dietitian Connections Accredited accredited webinar series interviewing power RDNs about some of the hottest topics in dietetics. This webinar series is all about empowerment. We created it because there are so many topics in the world of nutrition that are confusing, compelling, and intriguing. And with that in mind, it is our goal to highlight and provide you all with different perspectives and ideas on topical issues to keep you in the know, to inspire you, and ultimately help you become the very best RDN that you can be. Dietitian Connection's mission is to serve all of us, our RDN community. So if you have any suggestions at all on future topics and or future speakers, bring it on. Please let us know in the chat box. You could choose to do it now, or you can let us know in the feedback form that you'll be getting right after the webinar. But please let us know what you'd like to hear about and who potentially you would like to hear speak. So now, before we get started on today's topic, what do I eat? How to individualize food recommendations for diabetes. I have a few super quick housekeeping items. First, there will be time for questions, most definitely from the audience during today's conversation. This is what we're planning to cover, just so you can be aware. First, how to personalize current type 2 diabetes recommendations across a wide variety of patients' needs, as well as offer up practical meal planning tips and helpful products for those that are living with diabetes. We're also planning to review some of the lifestyle factors RDNs should be considering when looking for the best outcomes for their patients. But truly, if there's something we don't cover that you want to know about, please, please add your questions to the Q&A box. And additionally, you're going to be able to see questions that other members of the audience have submitted. And this is really important because you can upvote their question if you also want to hear it answered, which helps us to prioritize the information that you really want to know about. So be on the lookout for questions that you want to upvote. Second, if you have any tech issues at all, 
please message the Dietitian Connection team through the chat box. So you have the Q&A box for your questions and to upvote. And then you have the chat box for any assistance that you need with technical support. And also, we encourage you to share the experience today on social media. You can tag at Dietitian Connection and at Joy Bauer, J-O-Y-B-A-U-E-R on Instagram. And finally, there will most definitely be a recording available after the session. So you're going to get an email from Dietitian Connection with all of the recording information within the next 24 hours or so. And that email will also explain how you can get your continuing education certificate for today's event so that you can submit and get your well-earned CE credits. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our collaborative partner, the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute. It's also known as ANHI, and I wanna tell you a little bit about them. ANHI's mission is to connect and empower people through science-based nutrition resources to optimize health worldwide. HI offers a wide selection of free educational resources developed by key experts in the field. Resources that you can find at anhi.org, and it includes all sorts of things, self-study courses on a variety of topics, live webinars with Q&A, infographics that you can use with your patients, and podcasts for on-the-go learning. And you can join the ANHI community and subscribe to the free monthly newsletter and other electronic communication to help you stay informed about the latest and greatest nutrition resources, as well as events to support you and the patients that you serve. And now, it is my absolute great pleasure to introduce our extraordinary guests. First up, Kathy Briggs Early. She's an associate professor of nutrition at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences at Yakima, Washington. She teaches medical and health professional students about obesity, diabetes, nutrition, and chronic disease prevention and management. She has earned a doctorate in nutrition from Washington State University and has published research addressing quality of life, Rural and Latino Diabetes Disparities and Nutrition Education in Medical School. Kathy is also a reviewer for several peer-reviewed journals. Hi, Kathy. Hi, everybody. Great to be here. We're so lucky to have you. Next up, Angela Ginn Meadow is currently the director of Baltimore Metropolitan Diabetes Regional Partnership at the University of Maryland Medical Center. She is passionate about health, wellness, and obesity prevention. Angela's innovation of diabetes program management has been instrumental in ADA accreditation and CDC recognition for the University of Maryland Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology, DSME and DPP programs. As a community change agent for the development of wraparound services to improve social inequalities of health, she was recently appointed as advisory board president for the Morgan State Food and Nutrition Science Program to promote nutrition careers for minority students. She is also a scientific advisor for the Grains Food Foundation as a diabetes expert. Welcome, Kathy and Angela. Let me just tell you yeah. that we are super excited and grateful to have you here. Um, we really, truly are. And I think before I jump in with questions, it's really worth noting that our speakers today each bring a very unique viewpoint based on their respective patient population. So I'm going to give you like 
just a five cent summary or a quick snapshot about each of your populations. Kathy sees patients at a nonprofit free clinic in Yakima, Washington, an agricultural region. It's about, I think, two and a half hours southeast of Seattle. Is that right? It is, yeah. Okay, and about 90% or more of Kathy's patients are Mexican immigrants or migrants working in agriculture or other manual labor occupations. So while this setup allows her to see patients multiple times without concern of cost, there are clearly limitations in treatment options. Now, on the other hand, Angela sees patients at an academic medical center in Baltimore. Her patient population includes those with type 1 and type 2 diabetes with insulin pump therapy and or continuous glucose monitoring. Additionally, she specializes in diabetes in pregnancy and the management and prevention of diabetes-related complications. Wow. Well, that was a mouthful. And I love being able to show the, the two extreme perspectives because I know our audience is broad and really covers the gamut when it comes to patient load. So I'm going to just jump right in with questions, if that's okay. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> awesome. So the first question is actually to the both of you. And you feel free, whoever wants to jump in first, um, I would really love to hear your input on this. And the question is, when it comes to type 2 diabetes management and nutrition education, what is truly outdated? So in other words, as dietitians, what should we completely toss out from our counseling sessions? I know it's a big question, but I would love to hear your input. Kathy, do you want to go first or do you want me to take a stab at it? Uh, sure, I'll go, I'll go ahead. Um, I think maybe the, the rigid ideas that um, we used to, you know, if you're a dietitian of a certain age, you may have been trained to have a pretty rigid idea of what uh, people can and can't eat and the amounts they're allowed to eat and all of that sort of thing. And so I, I think that has really gone by the wayside. We, we really need to be more flexible now. And I would say um, I live in the world of carb counting. Every dietitian wants to teach everyone <laughs> carb counting, but you have to actually meet your patients where they are. And when we think about health literacy, carb counting takes a lot of numbers. And so we have to think about building blocks of education when we're talking about nutrition. It may just understanding the plate method first, and then mm -hmm. moving on to recognizing carbohydrates, and then do basic carbohydrate counting to advanced carbohydrate counting, but really meet them where they are. And people actually go on to pumps and technology without carb counting. And most dietitians think that there's no pass go if they do not know how to carb count. And that is one thing I want to make sure that don't stumble, don't take any type of excitement out of your patient. If they want to go on technology, if they can't carb count, they can learn along the way. And um, that technology may change their life. It's super interesting because I think most of us, you automatically, from a counseling perspective, you hear type two diabetes or diabetes in general, and you automatically go to carb counting. So I think that's a very, very big statement and message. So again, now to the both of you, so maybe I'll stay on you for a minute, Angela, and I'll ask you, so we now know that there's no such thing as this one size fits all recommendation. Um, are there any standout eating patterns? For example, Mediterranean style, vegan, vegetarian, low fat, keto, 
Or is it really just about listening and figuring out what is going to work for that particular patient that you're working with? And I'm going to, th- I'm going to throw in one more layer to that question. Okay. And I'm say, you know, I would also love you to touch upon carbs. You know, are, are you, do you tend to move more so in a lower carb eating style because of this specific population? So I will tell you, um, people come to me all the time with all different ideas in their mind of what how they should be eating when they've been just diagnosed with diabetes or living with diabetes for a long time. There is no one size fits all. We know that. But right. we do have to be mindful of people's likes and preferences and even cultural differences. And that's where you really meet them where they are. But we do know that the research shows that lowering the carb intake actually can make a difference of blood glucose control. So if someone really enjoys, um, I'll just say, you know, I love all types of soul food. I grew up on it. So my macaroni and cheese is my thing. I'm not going to tell somebody they can't eat macaroni and cheese or they have to have a whole wheat noodle. We may really talk about, okay, let's talk about the portion size or how often you eat it or making sure, you know, you know what, let's not have it all the time. Let's have it occasionally. So we really have to think outside of those pre-meal, like planned meals that used to give people and really think about what real life looks for them, but there is no one size fits all. Okay. And would you agree with that, Kathy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, as you said at the introduction, I work with a lot of folks who are of Mexican ethnicity and they, you know, really love tortillas and and beans and rice. And so I really try to work with those base uh, traditional food preferences as much as possible. Uh, a lot of people come in to see me and they're nervous that, you know, the dietitian is going to tell them that they can't eat all of their favorite foods uh, that they've grown up on. And so I try and reassure them and say, you know, no, it, it's not a matter of telling you, you can't eat all of these things. It's a matter of like Angela said, portion control and moderating how much of these high carb foods you have at one single time. Great. Um, and so I'm imagining that other this I'm, I'm wondering in in my brain, the following question, and I'm imagining other people might be thinking about it as well. So like when it comes to carbs in general, what would you guys say is a, a non low carb, like a normal carb percentage in the American diet, if somebody was just eating healthy and balanced, and then what would you define as a lower carb from a percentage standpoint, just so we can imagine what a low carb in your counseling sessions could look like? I think is the it techn- or is it a little bit more liberalized than that? I think the technical definition is um, anywhere between like 40 to 55% of total calories is considered um, moderate, you know, pretty typical average carbohydrate. And I, I suspect that a lot of folks who um, promote very low carb diets think it's actually much higher than that, but 40% of carbs is really quite moderate. And if, if you, you know, go back to the, the math that we all know about figuring out those percentages, it's really a pretty modest amount of total grams of carbohydrate. If you're only eating 40% and you know, you're eating maybe an 1800 calorie diet or something, I think it's somewhere around 180 grams of carbs. 
So that's very uh, reasonable for a lot of people, especially folks that do come to us and they have a background of eating much higher carb diets, you know, cutting them back to a 40% carb range is usually pretty attainable for most people and doesn't feel like it's really restrictive and withholding their favorite foods. Awesome. Thank you. I think, and I think what would be really helpful is after this, when we send um, all of our audience the follow-up email, we can put on there some sample days so people can actually get some sort of, you know, practicality and in, in how to handle the food piece, um, which is just complicated and so important. And you guys are truly the experts. So Angela, I'm going to ask you uh, some questions on snacking. How, tell us, how does snacking fit in? And do you actually encourage between meal snacks for people? Or is it sort of, again, like play it by ear, see what their eating style is like, see what the sugars are doing. And if in fact, there needs to be supplemental meals, but I would love to know about snacking. And if you do recommend snacking, like what is the golden rule here? Is it protein with fiber? Is it okay to have just carbs? Is it like, what do we do? So I want to tell you um, that old school mentality that you had to have three meals and three snacks, you can toss that right out the window. It really is about timing of meals. And if someone goes beyond six hours without something to eat, then that may be a suggestion of, hey, you may want a snack. Also understanding with the person about their mindful eating, you know, really seeing, were you satisfied with your breakfast? Were you satisfied with your lunch? Seeing if they're actually having good quality um, nutrients within that meal. But when it comes to snacking, I, you know, it's nothing wrong with it, but everybody doesn't need it. Um, you know, it depends on your activity, your lifestyle, also your job. Um, I have a nurse I just saw the day and she works night shift. So we talked about, okay, what times are you eating and do you need a snack? Especially when you're in that midnight stretch until the next morning when you get home. Um, I would say there are two, the golden rule, and this is just my golden rule, will really be about produce and produce protein. So produce and protein are some things that I just add together. And the reason why I say those golden rules is because sometimes with living with diabetes, we so focus on the carbs that we have lost all about healthy eating. And why not add healthy eating when you snack? So it could be just that making sure we have one serving or 15 grams of carbohydrate with one ounce of protein and then allowing the person to see how does that snack affect me? Check your blood sugar two hours after. See if it has a large spike. If it has a spike beyond 50 points, maybe that may be the wrong type or the more wrong, um, the really the wrong portion size for you. But also you could add a supplement. If you don't know what to have, you could have a meal replacement as a snack as well to keep your blood sugar stable from one meal to the next. Um, so I'm going to go back to supplements in a minute because I have a, a lot of questions to ask you about that. But, but um, when we get back to the snack examples, do you find that... Um, if somebody were to, let's say we're pushing produce. So if somebody were to have an apple as a snack or a banana, 
and they would have a spike, would you then recommend them trying it with a handful of nuts or seeds so that we get some heart healthy fat in there and some protein and fiber? And do you find that just that additive helps to sort of stabilize the blood sugar? It does. And it also um, prevents them feeling so hungry later on. Um, And protein actually does make your cells more sensitive to the insulin you actually produce. So we find that if we add that protein with that carbohydrate, you don't have that high spike. You will see that patients will say, I can't eat bananas, but we'll say, well, how big is your banana? And what are you having with your banana? So the handful of nuts, the cheese, it could be um, some turkey or some pepperoni slices. It could be something else that goes along with it that makes snacks fun. Snacks can be a dirty word, but it doesn't have to be. It really can be something that's healthy for you and just that quick bite you need to get you through the day. Awesome. And we're going to provide, oh, we already have. So we we pasted a whole bunch of your snack ideas in the chat, which is super helpful. So thank you for providing that. Um, That's great. Do you, Kathy, have a favorite snack that you tend to recommend with your population? Yeah, I'm a big promoter of of nuts, which is not actually super popular among my my Mexican patients, but um, they're usually very receptive to trying new things and um, they seem to enjoy that. So yeah, I, I recommend pretty much any nut or seed that people like as long as it's unsalted. That's great. And um, I mean, the key also is easy and totable and convenient. So yeah, like nuts sort of check all those boxes, but so do a lot of other foods as well. And there's so many fruits and veggies that are totable and, and have built in portion control, which is great. So now I am going to pivot to supplements that you, you had mentioned, because there are a lot of products that are sold in the supermarkets and online, which specifically target people who have type two diabetes, such as the meal replacement products. And um, also there are medical nutrition supplements such as Glucerna. I'd like to hear how, you know, you've utilized things like this within your practice and your population and what you have to say about them. So um, I really think um, supplements can be a great tool, especially when someone doesn't quite know what to eat or they're learning, um, learning how this diabetes and food thing goes. Um, And it really takes the um, takes a lot of the questioning out of it. Um, But I also believe that food has importance. (laughs) So we don't want to replace all the meals with supplements, but it really can be a great um, start. And it also can be a snack option. There are a lot of products out there for diabetes. And I lived in a household where my dad had diabetes, my aunt had diabetes. We all ate the same foods. We just had different portion sizes. And I think sometimes um, we get caught up in all the hype with fancy labels and things like that. But we can really get back to basis and see what's on our plate and um, make sure what's on our plate is really wholesome for us. Um, But supplements really do have a place. And I do recommend supplements for a lot of my clients, especially they're working long hours or they just don't know what to eat. Um, It's a great start for them to say, oh, I can add that with a piece of fruit and I can run out the door. We want healthy in a hurry. And that's what (laughs) supplements can (laughs) Healthy in a hurry can be something that really we can offer to um, (laughs) offer to our clients. 
That's great. Great. Great to know. And yeah, because convenience is um, a big part of this, right? It has to be easy. The healthy choice needs to be the easy choice. Um, so this next question is a loaded question. It's a huge question I have had in my head for a long time, and it's all about net carbs. And I'm sure that you hear about this all the time. So this is this is for both of you guys. Net carbs has gained a lot of attention and is regularly regularly used as a marketing strategy on a lot of labels. Many brands of crackers, cereals, bars, pastas, I'm seeing it pop up all over the place. And basically what they're doing is adding excessive amounts of functional fiber to jack up the total fiber to their products. And then what that does is it lowers the net carbs. And so just to explain to everybody, if anyone is confused on net carbs, and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong on this, um, my understanding of net carbs is that you take the total carb of a product and you subtract the amount of fiber, and then you're left with net carbs. So what products are doing now, they are increasing their functional fiber. So the, the amount of fiber in a product is elevated. So let's say pasta, for example, let's say hypothetically it has you know, 40 grams of carb per serving. But then what happens is they're adding functional fiber and then they add so much that there's 20 grams of functional fiber in a serving. And then you subtract that from the 40. So the net carbs now is only 20 grams of carbs. So my question is, first, how do you guys feel about this? And do you have a lot of patients coming in and asking about it? Probably more so you, Angie, than you, Kathy, with your population. Um, but also, how does the uncounted carbs impact blood sugar? Are we fooling ourselves? And I, I will take this first. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll take it really quickly and then I'll allow um, Kathy to speak. So net carbs is such a gimmick, I would say, um, especially wow. during a very low carb phase. Like, you know, everybody was like low carb, low carb this and net carbs came out. But what we actually, a tool we do, especially for our pumpers and people that are using CGMs, we will say if a product has five grams of fiber or greater, you can subtract the fiber from the carbohydrates. But what you will find is that um, that actually will affect your blood sugar over time. And what I mean by that is that spike that you thought would only happen in two hours, it may take three to four hours. And so we may extend boluses because of the large amount of fiber that's in it. Your gut slows down with that extra fiber. And um, we don't want things that are not naturally adding in fi more fiber. We want things that are fibers naturally found, like beans. Um, beans is a great way. But when you're thinking about net carbs, we totally just say, please, just subtract five grams or greater from the total carbohydrate, but be mindful of how long it will take for your body to actually process that. Okay. Yeah, I, I oh, sorry. No, no, please jump in. I, I was just going to say, I completely agree with what Angela explained and, and your definition of net carbs joy. Um, I think it is more useful in folks that are uh, type ones and pumping insulin. Um, back when I was an insulin pump trainer in a, a previous life, um, that was the exact same thing that I would teach patients. You know, if it, if a food had at least five grams, then you could worry about subtracting that off of the total carbs and, and bolus for that amount. But for my type two patients that I really mostly see nowadays, 
Um, I really don't encourage that. And most of my patient population doesn't even really talk about it. It's not on their radar anywhere near as much as the folks I used to see again about 10 or 20 years ago when I worked in uh, like endocrinology and pediatric endocrinology. So I think that um, uh, like in some of the, the chat comments, you know, net carbs is a bit of a gimmick from the food industry. And I understand, you know, everybody's trying to sell their products, but uh, I think it is a little bit unfortunate because it can cause some folks with type two diabetes, especially to get a little over, you know, zealous about counting carbs and subtracting things. And, and it can just make their life more complicated without a lot of uh, benefit physiologically. Interesting. Well, thank, thanks for that. I have been wondering that question for a very long time. Um, and the takeaway was more gimmick than impact. So, so here's a question that, that came in on carb counting. So I, I'm actually going to jump in with it. Angela, I loved your note that carb counting is not for everyone as patients are at different levels of health literacy levels. To your recommendation of progressing from basic to advanced carb counting, could you differentiate between the two? Sure. So basic carbohydrate counting is 15 grams. You know, one slice of bread is 15 grams. A half a cup of juice is 15 grams. Um, You would have a small apple is 15 grams. But advance is understanding exactly, looking at the label, using resources and saying, okay, no, this apple is actually 21 grams. This slice of bread is actually 28 grams. And using that as a tool, different tools to add exactly how much the grams of carbohydrate in. And you get fancy. Some people may start weighing their items, um, but it's a, it does require some measuring. And we want to make sure we see where our patients are with counting. Um, and then a lot of my type ones that have had type ones for a year, they do a lot of guesstimating. That's what I always say. They guesstimate um, because they can able to look at um, portion sizes. But when you're talking about basic, 15 grams is the basic. And then advance is when you're understanding exactly the correct carbohydrate for that portion. Great. And do you also find it helpful? Because like back in the day when I used to do a lot of private counseling, I, I wanted people to learn and weigh and measure, but only for a short time frame because I didn't want it to become a preoccupation or an obsession. So do you, is it helpful to have them measure in the beginning and sort of memorize, like really digest what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, and sometimes I would even have them take Sharpies on red solo cups or on their cereal bowls to make little marks. So they just knew for future, instead of having to take out the scale again and do things like that. Do you find those little tricks help? I do, um, especially the Sharpie. I use that a lot. Um, I also talk about um, finding your favorite plate or bowl and really understanding that portion size. And then when we find that our blood sugars start to creep up or we don't quite understand what's going on, to get pull those measuring cups and spoons back out and see if your portion size has grown because your eyes can fool you. So um, those are just little tricks that we like to do. And we don't, we know that this is a lifestyle. You're living with diabetes for a journey. It is not going to stop. So we want to find healthy habits and ways for them to incorporate all these things that doesn't seem burdensome. Great. So Kathy, 
Talk to me about cinnamon. We hear about the power of cinnamon and regulating blood sugars all the time. Um, Myth, fact, are there other herbs that could be helpful? Yeah, there's some interesting research that has been done on cinnamon. Um, Unfortunately, most of it requires a pretty large dose of cinnamon. So, you know, drinking, like a lot of my patients like to drink cinnamon tea. It's a very uh, cultural thing that that folks do. And um, they also often are aware of the link between blood sugar and cinnamon. And I tell them, you know, it certainly isn't going to hurt, but I'm not sure how much, you know, drinking just one or two cups of cinnamon tea a day is really going to have a meaningful impact on blood sugar. But there are, um, there's some supplements out there, you know, we've probably all seen them at the nutrition conferences and things. (laughs) And, um, you know, I don't know the, the evidence on those specific items, but um, there is some interesting research on cinnamon, but again, I, I think it requires a pretty high dose compared to what most people use in everyday life. Um, there's some other other uh, herbs and things that people use, like moringa is very uh, popular um, as a tea and um, also as a supplement, and and that's a that's got some hypoglycemic effects for folks. Um, uh, another one that's very popular among my patient population are uh, nopales or uh, cactus uh, paddles. Those are very uh, popular to put in um, salsa and smoothies and things like that. And so that's also something that, again, has some some very interesting research showing that it has some hypoglycemic effects. So I I encourage folks to use those sorts of things if they enjoy them and and they, um, you know, find them useful. Um, But usually the effect is quite modest. It's not, you know, a super dramatic effect on blood sugar from what I've seen. But but really cool to hear about that because it's such a... um hungry audience, like no pun intended. It's an audience who, you know, really wants to try whatever they can. And I also like the idea of adding things versus pulling things away. Um, And so sprinkling cinnamon on your oatmeal or adding to a smoothie or sipping on the tea. I think that that's really cool um, and and feels good as long as you're telling me there's no downside. And I always wondered about the, did the cinnamon have to be pharmaceutical grade versus ground cinnamon or cinnamon sticks that we have in our cupboards? But you're saying it could be again the amount makes a difference, but yeah. it really could be any type of cinnamon. Yes, as far as I know, yeah. Um, and I think it's also really important again looking at the cultural side of food, which is so important to all of us. If if you have patients who really have cultural food habits that could be beneficial to their diabetes management, even in small ways, I think that's really useful. So I definitely encourage people to support those types of choices for their patients. Great. So Kathy, I'm going to stay with you for a minute and um, I'm going to ask you, so in diabetes management, how does something like quality of life and a patient's personal factors impact their ability to make changes or implement successful routines? And I think we, we know the, yeah, like we, we intuitively know the answer to this, but I would love to hear from you because you, you have, um, you have a tricky and complicated population. For sure. Yeah. A lot of the patients that I work with um, work very long hours. So they're, you know, up at four or five in the morning, they're at work by six or seven in the morning and they work until it gets dark usually. So, um, and they often will work six or seven days a week, even during the peak um, time. So they're working extremely long hours. They often work in conditions where they don't have refrigeration easily accessible. So they have to pack food that, you know, can stay reasonably temperatured. Um, and that can be challenging. So I think um, 
figuring out what's going to work for, for your patient population is really important. And quality of life is just so paramount. Um, you know, whenever you have a patient who comes in to see you and maybe they're by themselves and they tell you their story and you have your ideas of what you're going to recommend, I really hope that everybody will just pause for a moment and remember to ask them about their social situation. Who are you living with? Who does your food preparation and cooking? Um, what is your social situation? Are you, you know, are you married or do you live with a romantic partner or do you live by yourself? Um, because those factors we know from, from just mountains of research are so essential to helping somebody be um, successful or not as successful with the, any type of meal plan, especially in diabetes. Um, it's even helpful in terms of, you know, self-monitoring behaviors like monitoring blood sugar and checking feet and those types of things. So quality of life and social support is just really essential. And I, my hope is that more dietitians will recognize that and really take it into their practice in a meaningful way for their patients. So knowing that social support is so critical, do you have any um, tips or practical advice for dietitians that are watching when it comes to, you know, helping a patient that currently does not have any social support whatsoever? Yeah, trying to connect people with community resources in that case is really helpful. So if, you know, there's a diabetes support group around, that might be something that's useful for, for some folks. Uh, some people benefit from um, church-related groups that might also have a, a diabetes support kind of component. Some people rely on neighbors or friends in their, in their neighborhood that can offer some kind of friendly, you know, meal sharing, meal prep type situation where they can get together on a Sunday or a weekend and do some meal prep together. And that can be a nice way to help people who are maybe living by themselves and don't have um, close family or friends, you know, nearby. Super helpful. Thank you for that. Um, we have a bazillion questions coming in and they're all really, really good ones. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skip to my last question for each of you. Um, I think it's going to be simple for you to answer. And then we have some meaty questions that I'm excited to address. So the question for both of you guys, and this again will be the last one from me, is when it comes to the prevention or delaying the development of type 2 diabetes, what dietary interventions are you most likely to recommend to those with pre-diabetes? It doesn't, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not put, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think if you can just toss out what you think are practical tips and bits of info for everybody watching, it would be terrific. I'll go first. Um, I really um, am plant forward. And what I mean by that is um, I really encourage people to think about a vegetarian or a vegan lifestyle, but or just add more plants. Um, just starting with a half a plate of non-starchy vegetables at least twice a day can be the biggest key to also helping them prevent diabetes in the long run. We, we know we don't eat enough, especially fruits and vegetables. And that is really one of the biggest things that I typically um, um, push. I know Kathy is going to talk about something that she's really passionate about, which I don't want to say because I, I push that too, but definitely um, being plant forward is really, really important um, for people to really prevent type 2 diabetes. Great. And so before I get into Kathy's secret advice, um, yes. 
I, I, I do want to ask you, do we have to worry about some of the non-starchy veggies that just inherently have a little bit more sugar naturally, like carrots or beets? Or is that like old fashioned and out the window? It is totally old fashioned out the window. I would rather somebody eat a whole bag of carrots. I would be so excited. I mean, but you would be getting fiber. You would be getting vitamins and minerals versus a whole bag of chips. Just making that switch alone um, for even somebody reaching for that sweet treat that they love, that they just reach for a piece of fruit, it make a big difference. So um, that's what I, you know, that's why I really want to make sure I encourage people to do. Awesome. And so, for example, if if you notice, though, the trend, because you are doing glucose monitoring as, you know, dietitians that are watching, they're doing glucose monitoring as well. If you see somebody, you know, eating an excessive amounts of carrots, first, we give them a standing ovation. But if the if a blood sugar would spike, you would just tell them to maybe have some nuts or seeds or avocado mm-hmm. or, you know, something accompanying it. And then we would level out the blood sugars. Awesome. So happy to know we don't have to worry about those <laughs> sweet little veggies that we I all on. So Kathy, what, do you, what are you going to tell us? Yes. I, I want to echo what Angela said. Definitely. You know, if we can, if we can be moving more toward the camp of yes, do this, like eat more plants and vegetables. Um, and instead of the, I think the view that a lot of people have about dietitians that were there to like take away all their favorite foods and tell them no all the time, I think that'll do us all a great service. Um, but then the other thing that I like to recommend, and I learned this back when I was training as a dietitian in the late nineties, um, from a dietitian I worked with and who really mentored me. Um, and she was a big fan of this and I've just totally adopted it. Um, no liquid carbs. So liquid carbs, as the name implies, any juice, uh, sugar sweetened beverages. It doesn't matter if it's hundred percent fruit juice or sunny delight or, or whatever it might be. And of course, all of your sodas and colas and energy drinks and all of that stuff. I really try. And that's the one thing that I kind of won't budge on for patients. I, I have patients who, um, because again, they're working these very hard jobs where they're, you know, working real hard, they get hot. And so they want something cold to drink. So they often will come in to see me and they're drinking a lot of sugar sweetened beverages. So I try and really, I use a very simple analogy that seems to really get across. I say, drinking sugar sweetened beverages is like sporting lighter fluid on a lit barbecue. When you have diabetes, you just cannot do it to yourself. It's just so terrible. So, um, you know, at the same time, when I have somebody who's drinking maybe six Cokes a day, I, I try and ease them down. I, you know, usually most people can't quit cold Turkey. So I try and negotiate with them. Well, you know, could you cut back to maybe three a day instead of six a day? Um, could you try Coke zero or, you know, some people refuse to try any of the diet products. They really don't like the taste of them. A lot of folks, as you know, don't like to drink water. So there's a lot of negotiation that goes in on this. But again, I think it's working with where your patient's at and trying to ease them down into a more healthy situation with, again, more planned foods and less and no sugar-sweetened beverages. Awesome. Fabulous. Fabulous. So now we're going to take some questions from the audience. We have quite a few, that's for sure. And I also want to remind everybody that you can upvote questions that you also want to know the answer to so that we know how popular they are. And, um, you know, we can absolutely uh, get them on the calendar. So the first one is from Lauren. And one, I think, Kathy, you just touched upon this. It was uh, sort of like the diet or the artificially sweetened flavored beverages. But Lauren asks, 
can we touch on non-nutritive sweeteners, both artificial and the naturally derived? So, you know, whether it be stevia or monk fruit, but all of the um, sort of no insulin impact sweeteners that are on the market right now, some RDs are so adamant about never using them. How do you approach these with people who either have pre-diabetes or type one and or type two diabetes? Great question, Lauren. Thank you. That is a great question. Yeah, sure. So for, I do have um, clients that refuse to use um, any artificial sweeteners. And that means they do a lot of counting. (laughs) And what I mean by that is they know that one teaspoon will be 15 grams. So you have to count it. And over time, they realize like, oh, it wasn't really worth it. Or they may say, I need to take more insulin now. Um, We really are trying to control your blood sugar. And I know you don't want to get rid of all your sugar, but we want to cut back. So it could be in your tea. Instead of three teaspoons, let's add one teaspoon. It's just a simple um, switch. But I do want to say that Um, non-nutritive sweeteners, that artificial sweeteners are alternative for people. They do help with um, preventing some of those spikes in the blood sugar. The jury's still out regarding weight loss, but really think about it. It is an alternative for people that they don't want to have to get rid of everything and they can still have a sweet treat, especially a beverage of their choice with an artificial sweetener. So that's just my little bit of my take on it. Um, I'm going to put put you on the spot and feel free Mm -hmm. to say that, you know, you you take the fifth and you don't want to answer this. But I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. um, throughout your counseling experiences, do you have more positive experiences when it comes to blood sugar control and also adherence with specific non-nutritive sweeteners over others? For example, you know, do you find you have more so um, studied blood sugars with sucralose rather than a stevia, rather than a monk fruit. I'm trying to keep these generic. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, but it would be interesting to hear. And again, only if you want to answer. Well, I really would say it's that first beverage in the morning for most of my clients. And mostly it is that coffee or tea. And if I can actually change how their blood sugar is affected with that coffee or tea, it makes a big difference. Now, I will say there has no been no difference with the sweetener that's used, long as it's non-nutritive. Okay. I've seen the difference with the added um, creams or flavoring that is used. And that would really raise their blood sugar. And um, I just want to, you know, I just don't want to take that joy away. You know, food is joy, (laughs) just like your name, joy. Food is joy. And so some people have a routine and we don't want to change all the routines. We just want to see how can it fit into this new lifestyle of living with diabetes. Awesome. And Kathy? Uh, just what Angela said. Yeah, I completely agree with her as, as usual. Um, yeah, we have to work with patients and, and some of them are very interested in non-intrative sweeteners and some of them are not. Um, and so I approach it that way, you know, and I also, based on all of the consensus statements and the guidelines we have, um, we don't have any information that indicates that these are not useful for folks with diabetes. So, I think they can be part of a healthy, balanced meal pattern if a patient wants to try them out. 
terrific. Um, so we have a, a, quite a few questions on keto. So I'm going to start with the first, um, who this is from Marcella. What can we tell those patients who want to follow a ketogenic diet? Is it recommended? So keto should be really um, followed by a physician. So um, dietitians, you would not want to get someone started with a keto diet and you are working with them without a physician's um, permission or medical advisement. Um, there has been a little research regarding very low carbohydrate diets, all the way down to 20 to 50 grams a day. They have shown that those individuals um, actually can improve their blood sugars. Now, that does not mean that um, they do not need to be seen by the doctor or anything, because you will have to make adjustments to medications along the way. Um, especially with the weight loss and following keto. Um, it's all about how long you can stay on that. Keto is not for everybody <laughs> and that may not be sustainable. And so um, working with a client, you really have to make sure that it is have medical supervision along with um, following a keto diet. So, so this is actually, you, you bring up a really good point because Jeanette had asked, you know, how how do you work with people who are following a keto diet, but but then sort of transition them? I'm taking liberties with your question, Jeanette, forgive me, but I, I'd love to know if there's a way to transition them. And do you have to do you struggle with them then being fearful of carbohydrates in general? And then sort of it becomes this whole negative mindset. Um, or have you had a lot of luck with an experience with easily transitioning people from a keto where they do well, but it's not sustainable for the long term. So you sort of want to come to this moderate level. How does that work? Well, keto is so restrictive. And so they are fearful to add the carbohydrates back in. We add in carbohydrates gradually. And I think it all depends on the motivating factor. If their motivating factor is their blood sugar control, they may say, well, I would like to stick at this, stay at this point. If it is not that motivation, if it's weight loss, we have to kind of really think about their overall health. Um, and then also tell them that even if you went to a 20% carbohydrate intake for a 2000 calorie diet, that's roughly about 100 grams a day. That's much, you know, it's still considered very low, but in their world, they're so used to eating so right. fewer carbs. Yeah. So gradual is the key. Okay. Um, and so this is a question from Carissa and Kathy, I think that you're going to have a lot to say about this. Can you speak to the challenge of clients, patients working with physicians who provide recommendations to restrict favorite foods or cultural foods, you know, then suddenly like they land as our patients, yet they have great rapport with their physicians who are sort of, you know, being a little unrealistic. Yeah, that can be tricky. And I think um, dietitians should not be afraid to approach physicians for that kind of private conversation with the physician to just try and understand where the physician's rationale is coming from. You know, sometimes physicians just simply you know, they just have kind of a generic one size fits all type idea in their mind. And so they, 
they think, you know, oh, well, you can't eat any white foods, so you shouldn't eat any tortillas, for example. Um, and as somebody who, you know, works with future physicians a lot, I can tell you that, you know, a lot of them really don't know a lot about nutrition. And so um, I think most physicians, in, in, at least in my experience, are willing to to listen to the dietitians and, you know, be kind of open-minded about that. But certainly there are some physicians, I'm sure some of us have worked with those folks who are very rigid and, and uh, refuse to kind of budge on that. So, so that really does kind of put the dietitian in an awkward situation, right? Because we're, we're trying to do what the doctor has requested, but at the same time, we can see that the patient is sort of miserable. Um, I'm of, I'm of the type of dietitian that I would often try and kind of find a middle ground and write my note accordingly. Like, you know, the, the meal plan recommended is just not tenable for this patient. So we negotiated a different, you know, plan or something along those lines. Um, because you have to, in the end, you have to do something that the patient can stick to and, and that is going to work for them. And um, whether or not a physician, you know, wants a certain plan is sort of irrelevant if the, if the patient can't do what they're, needing to do. Right. I always say the best food plan is the food plan that a particular person can stick with. For That's sure. it. Right. And that goes back to like, there's no one size fits all. And also you made me think about, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? Show them the evidence. Like uh, you, you can actually impress um, the socks off of a physician by showing that, Hey, yeah, like we can get creative here. This is collective eating and they can have this. And let me show you how we progress with blood sugar control sort of a thing. And then by the way, you're getting more and more and more kudos and referrals from that particular physician. And your patient is happy and doing well, which is always the most important thing. So this is another sort of, um, doctor related questions. So I think it's a good one. And it, it, it came in in a lot of different forms um, from many, many people. So how do you manage the weight question? While traditionally the medical community works on the belief that weight loss equals improved glucose control. So I have a hard time when physicians and or my patients are more concerned about food restriction for weight loss than eating to improve their blood glucose control, especially when dieting and they're following a calorie restriction doesn't always lead to improved blood glucose control. So in other words, like we're flipping this weight loss equals blood glucose control on its head because we know like that's not always the case. So yeah, how, how do you guys address that both with physicians and with the patients? So for me, it's really about where the diabetes journey is. And why I say that is because um, your pancreas and those beta cells, that's what's really producing the insulin. And so no matter for some people, no matter how much weight you lose and you are taking insulin and because your beta cells are kind of pooped out, it doesn't make a difference. Um, and so we really talk about, okay, where is your diabetes stand? If your diabetes is not well controlled, we need to actually focus on the diabetes management. The diabetes management could be what you're eating day in and day out. It could be also physical activity. It could be stress management. It could be a number of different things. It could be sleeping habits. But let's control the blood sugar first. 
then we can then talk about, hey, what are some healthy ways we can do to lose some additional pounds? But if we focus on the basics of getting eating healthy, exercising, um, even sleeping well and stress management, usually everything kind of falls in line. And um, it's just changing the perspective. I know weight loss is important, but I want to talk about your overall health and your diabetes and blood sugar control is highest priority first. I love that. I love that. Kathy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we are more than just our medical record, a list of diagnoses. So if you have a patient with diabetes or obesity or overweight status, there's other stuff also in their life and, and what, what is going on and contributing to those issues. So yeah, I completely agree. Awesome. So like, just to sort of sum this up, what I'm hearing is there's no one size fits all plan, um, like diabetes food plans, as we used to know it are like out the window, toss them. This is a personalized approach, loads and loads of produce and healthful ingredients, uh, lots of exercise, which we know also increases insulin sensitivity for sure, being realistic, being compassionate, listening to each and every person that comes within your doors. And while carbs, it sounds like carbs remain super, super important, it doesn't have to be traditional carb counting like we used to do. And I love the fact that all of the different eating plans, whether it be vegetarian, vegan, keto, Mediterranean style, like these are all options for us to use within our clientele um, and just, you know, personally tailoring it so that sustainability is the key. I think we would probably all agree on that. I can't even believe that I have to say this, but we are out of time. It goes so incredibly fast. Whew. I just want to thank everyone again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's session and you got a lot out of it. I know that I sure did. And I want to give tremendous appreciation to both Kathy and Angela for sharing their insight and expertise with such grace and generosity. You both provided so much vital information in practical and truly in an optimistic manner. And we are incredibly grateful for that. And thank you also to Abbott Nutrition Health Institute for making today possible. And most importantly, guys, a heartfelt thanks to all of you for tuning in and making the world a healthier and a happier place, truly. Here's to good health and delicious food, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye, guys. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.